Welcome to the Megawatt Hour, the latest podcast series brought to you by Energy Voice in paid partnership with BDO. In this series, we'll be examining how energy storage technologies are reshaping, reinforcing, and indeed recharging energy markets in the UK and further afield. From batteries to gravity, there are myriad ways to capture, store, and use energy both on and off the grid. In this, the first episode of our box set series, we'll be taking a broad look at how these technologies work and the ways in which they'll play an increasingly important role as we adopt cleaner and greener sources of energy across the UK economy and around the globe. I'm Andrew Dykes, an editor at Energy Voice, where we are leading the global energy conversation. And today I'm delighted to be joined by my co-host, David Bevan. David is a corporate finance partner at BDO and heads up the group's renewable energy practice in the UK. We're also joined today by our guest, Marek Kubik, as well as being a founding member and managing director of energy storage technology company Fluence, Marek is a cleantech advisor to the UN and has been recognized in the Forbes 30 under 30 list, so he's very well placed to help us understand the past, present and future of the sector. So, with that in mind, we've got a lot of ground to cover. I'm going to dive straight in and pull in my co-hosts. David, what do we mean when we talk about energy storage? Essentially, storage is a form of flexibility, really. It can be used to balance supply and demand on the system, essentially. There are lots of other things you can use to balance supply and demand. You can change supply. You can change demand as well. Ultimately, the ultimate flexibility tool is a, is a, is a good old-fashioned power cut. I suppose it's the flexibility of last resort, in a, in, in a sense, uh, which is quite a popular technique when I was a kid in the in the 70s and 80s. Um, but we kind of have a slightly different view of power cuts and power outages nowadays. So really, it's storage is a form of flexibility. Sometimes people use the phrase time shifting. I've heard that phrase used quite a bit in, in, um, in this area. And really, it's about taking power that's been generated at one point in time, keeping hold of it and using it again at a different time when you need it. As we go through the series, there's going to be quite a few acronyms and various different complex terms thrown around. Could I ask either of you to pick up on a couple that you think are the most important that we should know about? Uh, David first. I guess when we think about storage and different storage technologies, there are various ways of characterizing them or assessing them, and they have different characteristics, and they're really quite broad. So there's energy capacity uh, and the, um, the the power rating of, of uh, technologies, but there's also the cost. You know, a, a pumped hydro system is significantly more expensive than a, a utility-scale battery storage system. Um, there's scalability. Can you just add bolt bits on or are you sort of fixed by some geographic or other constraint indeed where can where can your technology go where can the solution go is it uh, required to go in a certain place what's its speed of response so battery is very fast able to respond super quickly to a request from the grid gas peakers pretty fast but they still take a few minutes etc to, to, to get going there's speed of charge and discharge and also the ability of the system to, to go through multiple cycles. So as we all know from mobile phones, your battery in the phone gets less and less effective over time. Safety, different systems have relatively different um, risk characteristics. You know, batteries have occasionally caught on fire. And management systems are pretty, pretty good nowadays and getting better, um, but there is some risk. Useful life, hydro stations, if you maintain them, can last 50, 100 or more years, and there are such systems out there that are you know, 100 years old. Batteries, more of a challenge. So those are some of the characteristics that you need to consider and assess when looking at different types of storage solution. And then I can maybe add 
some of the the TLAs, the three letter acronyms that Please. get thrown around a lot with energy storage, just to to help understand some of those. They relate to a lot of things that David just mentioned. So RTE is a common one, round trip efficiency. So it's a very simple measure of energy in versus energy out and how efficient an energy storage facility is. Batteries are particularly good in this re- regard. Depends on exactly on their power energy ratio, but for a long duration storage system, you can get somewhere close to a a 90% round trip efficiency, which is much higher than a lot of other technologies. But on the other hand, batteries do degrade. uh, So they don't have the usable energy capacity they have at their beginning of life in 10 years if you use it you know for a cycle a day every every day it, it reduces over time so that's something commonly referred to as SOH state of health which is a measure of of the original capacity that was installed how much of that capacity has left uh, how much is is remaining and usually depends on how you're going to use the battery but after 10 15 maybe 20 years you're going to reach the end of its initial useful life where you can still then you know replenish remove those batteries, replace them with others. But compared to other technologies which don't degrade or degrade very, very slowly, that is something you have to consider. State of charge, very common one for any duration limited technology, which is exactly what it sounds like. What level of energy capacity is left in the the fuel tank, so to speak, usually ranges from zero to 100, but some technologies may have restrictions on, on how they can be used. And then you can get into different chemistries. Lithium ion is really an umbrella term for a lot of different interesting subchemistries and technological innovations. So the most common that are used in grid storage are NMC, which is nickel manganese cobalt batteries. Those are also used predominantly in electric vehicles because of their energy density, uh, which lets you pack a lot in and get a lot of range into a, a given electric car. And then LFP, which is lithium ion phosphate chemistry. So that is also now increasingly being used in electric cars. It's less energy dense. So you, for stationary storage, perhaps that matters less. I would argue it still does matter because footprint equals money as well in terms of land, in terms of containerization, thermal management, and everything else. But those are the two dominant chemistries. So you'll hear LFP and NMC mentioned a lot if you're if you're talking about uh, battery storage. And there are a lot of other subchemistries as well and a lot of interesting innovations within lithium ion that are that, that you know may still take place over the next few years or decades and at the end of the podcast series there'll be a quiz uh, on all the acronyms covered throughout the series uh, and i intend to get full marks <laughs> <laughs> and uh, marek your, your company fluence was created specifically to, to kind of play in this market so, so can you give us an idea of what some of these solutions look like and, and maybe how you've seen them develop over your time at the company i think first it's helpful to level set a little bit about the kinds of storage that are out there in the world and 85% still of energy storage on the electricity grid at least in the world today is pumped hydro so this is literally pumping water up a hill putting it behind a dam and running it back down a hill to generate electricity so storage takes a lot of different forms we we tend to use electricity storage as a shorthand because that's mostly where the exciting stuff is happening and developing at the moment but there's also Thermal storage, I mean, the old world of fossil fuels was chemical storage, right? Essentially, you're storing energy in the form of oil, gas, coal, which you could literally stockpile and run as you needed. But as we're moving to a world of increasing renewable generation for various reasons, so some of those are existential, like climate change. Some of them are geopolitical, such as repower EU and you know moving away from dependence on, say, Russian fossil fuels. You know, Others are simply that renewables are becoming the cheapest form of electricity generation. So there's a need to drive towards that. But because of that variability, 
you essentially need some way of dealing with the intermittency of renewables, whether that's that the sun simply doesn't shine at night or whether it's uh, you know dealing with smoothing the balance of supply and demand. And that's where you know, Fluence come in. We're, we're an energy storage technology company. Um, so we provide energy storage products and services to help integrate renewables to the grid. We're not actually a battery manufacturer ourselves, but we're pretty much working only with lithium-ion batteries today. In our very early days, we work with a lot more technologies, but because of the cost curve of lithium-ion batteries, which has declined very, very significantly over the past 10 years or so, uh, we're finding that's a very economical way of solving a lot of the flexibility challenges that David was talking about. You've touched on it there. I guess that the, the crucial question is, is why do we need it? What, what problem is it solving on the grid that we, we need these kind of forms of, of energy? Well, there's a lot of different problems that it solves, which is part of the fun of it, I think. But uh, so one of the the important ones, I mean, David mentioned time shifting. So that's the most obvious example. If you think of uh, energy storage in its sort of most fundamental sense, it's essentially an electron time machine. So you're taking an electron that would have otherwise been used in real time, storing it in some other form, in this case, an electrochemical form in a battery, and then discharging it for later on. So that deals with the more obvious intermittency problems. It's easiest to think with solar that the sun shines in a nice, relatively predictable way. Well, maybe not in the UK with cloud cover and everything, but generally in a sunny country in a very predictable way. But at the same time, that predictable way doesn't match the demand profile. So you need a certain amount of storage to be able to shift that energy from day to night. So that's one sort of very obvious area I think most people can get their heads around quite straightforwardly. But there are also others. So another one is actually geographic. If you look at the distributed nature of renewable energy, uh, so offshore wind, for instance, is mostly, as the name suggests, offshore and far away from the demand centers. You also have constraints getting the electricity from where it's generated to where it needs to get to. So if you think about it in terms of pipes and flow, the pipes of, of the electricity grid, which are the transmission and distribution lines around the country, only have so much capacity. And if the pipes are full, you have to basically turn off the taps, so to speak, and pay to turn not to use renewable energy, solar energy, because you can't actually get it from A to B. And solving those constraints is something that also energy storage is quite useful at doing because you can store at one end and discharge at the other. And then not only do you have an electron time machine, you also have an electron teleportation device because it can disappear over here and appear over here without having to have ever built a transmission line between the two. So that one I think is also very interesting. There are a whole load of others, but I could spend probably the next half an hour of, of this podcast talking about them. So maybe I'll leave it at those two. Actually, Marek, I, you, you reminded me of a, a question that's I had. Um, I've, I've sometimes heard people use um, the sort of bath analogy when they're trying to describe how you define different characteristics of storage technologies. And I'm, I've never quite sort of mastered the the, the analogy, but um, it's something to do with the um, these two key variables, which are uh, energy storage and power rating so the amount of oomph and the amount of stuff you can um store is it if you got the uh, <laughs> can you describe the analogy better than i can oomph and stuff um <laughs> I'll, I'll have a go david um i mean in terms of those two metrics the most common that are associated with with energy storage would be power and, and energy so you can consider energy in terms of energy capacity so this is typically at grid scale talked about in megawatts and megawatt hours. In a domestic scale, you might be talking kilowatts. So just for perspective, you know, a kettle might be, you know, a thousand watts. That's, um, you know, roughly what it takes to, to boil a kettle for two or three minutes. We're talking another 1000 times larger than that to get to megawatt scale. And for that sort of scale, you have your power, which is 
how much oomph you can provide to the electricity grid, how much you're contributing in terms of electricity in, in real time, but how long you sustain that for is also a very relevant metric. It's not so much a relevant metric for fossil fuel generation because you generally speaking had, okay, not a completely limitless resource, but you didn't really have to think about how much capacity you had. Whereas with a, a battery, for instance, you might have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, something like that hours of duration. And if you multiply see the, the duration of how long you can discharge the power for by that that power, that'll give you your your fuel tank, essentially, your megawatt hours. So if it's a 100 megawatt battery and you've got four hours of capacity, that's 400 megawatt hours of capacity, so 100 times four. Those are the two most important metrics. The power dictates the maximum you can do. doesn't mean it's what you have to do because you could obviously go at half power for twice as long or a quarter power for four times as long. So there's flexibility between the two the two elements. But um, I mean, the bath bathtub and a tap is not a bad analogy, just a different one to the one I would usually use when I'm talking to electrical engineers. So we've kind of mentioned um, the big numbers around kind of how these, these projects work and especially the ability to time shift. There's also kind of the in-between stage of energy storage to do with things like grid balancing. And David, you mentioned it right at the beginning. Um, can you give us an idea of kind of that that market? And, and this is another element of, of how these projects can can support renewables, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I guess if we focus for the moment on what I would describe as utility scale battery storage. So as Marek described, you know, l- large um, batteries in uh, perhaps in containers in a field somewhere linked to the grid providing a range of services. The key services they're providing are frequency response, which is really linked to very short-term responses to grid requests to increase or decrease voltage. So, so um, going back to the um, the intermittency point, if you think of a, a solar farm operating and a, and, a, and a cloud passes over, you get a very a relatively small local shift in output, and that can have frequency impacts on the on the local grid. And the grid is bound so that all of our plug sockets and electrical equipment works properly at 50 hertz. It's bound to supply electricity within that, within a fairly narrow band around 50 hertz. So one of the services that the grid can use to counteract the impacts of clouds going over solar farms, for example, is to call on batteries at very short notice, milliseconds, seconds, etc., to discharge and and fill the gap, essentially. So that's frequency response, which is a very short-term uh, service. There, there are slightly longer-term services that battery utility-scale batteries um, provide. The key one, I think, at the moment within the balancing mechanism is, is dynamic containment, which I could try and explain, but I might just defer to Marek <laughs> to, uh, to explain how that works and what, what service that's providing. So dynamic containment is one of, there, there are a lot of acronyms which we're probably going to, to throw around or try and avoid in this podcast maybe, but dynamic containment is is one of the most popular services for, for batteries now. It's come and replaced something that used to be called firm frequency response, FFR. Essentially, it is an automated algorithm with very strict rules around how you respond so that you respond very quickly and very accurately to any frequency deviation on the grid. So taking David's example, cloud passes over a solar farm, the generation from the solar farm dips, and as the supply has dipped compared to the demand, the frequency is going to fall. If the frequency falls below a certain trip, well, it could fall to a point where nothing happens. Uh, There is a certain range called the dead band in which nothing happens. So if the frequency stays close enough to the 50 hertz, which it's supposed to be, the grid stays nice and stable, 
nothing's called upon. But if it goes below this trigger threshold, the algorithm essentially determines how strongly the battery should respond to help uplift the frequency. So the faster it's falling, uh, the frequency that is, the faster the battery is going to respond and the more aggressively it's going to pick up its its output to try and balance that out. So that that's essentially it. There's a lot more nuance to it, but basically it's it's responding to changes in frequency in an automated way that provide a lot of precision and control. National Grid has some capability to tweak and hone these different parameters. So they could change, for instance, things like the you know, the dead band setting or the droop characteristics or how aggressively the battery responds depending upon, upon system needs. Uh, it's also very, very high resolution. So actually they take 20 millisecond timestamps, which is an insanely fast polling period. So you have to have very good software and controls to be able to manage to deliver these sorts of services. It's not any battery system that can do it. And it is quite a demanding one, but it's very valuable to the electricity grid to be able to have a technology that can respond this fast because it's significantly faster than fossil fuel generation would have been able to, to respond in the past. And that's probably worth flagging that one of the great benefits of, of these these battery systems is, is their speed of response. And that's one of the reasons you're seeing relatively significant increases in investments and deployment of these kinds of kinds of systems on on, on the grid because it works you know so um we, we've touched mostly on batteries and mostly on the kind of short to medium term there is it worth kind of zooming out a little bit and looking at the the medium to longer term kind of options that we have so you mentioned pump hydro um you know there are options like gravity how uh, how are they being deployed and, and what do they allow us to do that's this maybe slightly different from the kind of immediate short-term battery type projects it's a very topical question actually at the moment because in the last week ease the european association for the storage of energy just came out with a, a new report looking at what needs to be done by certain targets for 2030 and 2050 to help essentially achieve the renewable decarbonization targets that have been set and whilst we talk about batteries a lot particularly because they solved the very near-term challenge. That report sort of identified in the European context, so looking right across Europe, to get to that sort of average target, you would need to be able to balance the grid with about 60... You could get to about 60% renewable electricity penetration with what they term daily storage, which I think was under, under 10 hours of duration. So... That sort of territory is something that batteries play in quite comfortably. We're not quite at 10-hour batteries yet, but we, you know, there are examples of six, even eight-hour duration batteries in niche cases now uh, around the world. Mostly they sit in about the four, four to six-hour range uh, as a maximum. But then to get beyond 60% renewables, if you want to get to 80% or beyond, you start to need to look at weekly or multi-day storage at least, and then seasonal storage. So I would usually bracket it in those sort of three ways, daily storage, multi-day slash weekly, and then seasonal. What can fill the multi-day storage gap is the kinds of technologies you're, you just mentioned, Andrew. So things like pumped hydro, it could be liquid or compressed air energy storage. So physically compressing air until it is a liquefied. And that can be in underground caverns using depleted gas fields, or it could be building you know custom containers above the ground to, to, to do that in. Uh, so there's a, a number of different technologies and of course pumped hydro as well which is by far the most established it just tends to take a long time to to, to build and permit and get new pumped hydro on but that can help fill that multi-day gap the most challenging and the most interesting i think is the the seasonal storage and finding a low carbon way of doing that and there are a lot of potential technologies that can help achieve that power to x being one so that is for instance running electrolyzers to take electricity from the grid as it's being generated to turn it into hydrogen fuel. 
Um, you could use thermal forms of storage, so whether that's heating heating up rocks, which you know maintain a very uh, stable temperature, which can then be extracted later on. There are you know multitude of different ways that the very long duration challenge can be solved, but they're also sort of the furthest out in terms of of their maturity. And you'll need all three if you want to get to essentially a, a fully decarbonized electricity system, which which we do by by twenty fifty. That seems like a great place to take a quick break, and we'll be right back after this. To uncover the full story behind the numbers, you need analytics. But more than that, you want people who will harness their experience, intelligence and insight to interpret the raw data. BDO's UK Renewables practice works with investors and developers across a wide range of renewable technologies and from large corporates and funds to small community energy projects. The passion of our people and the breadth of our expertise enables us to understand the challenges faced by our renewables clients. We are partner-led, pragmatic and flexible in our approach, which is essential in such a dynamic and evolving sector. Our model audit team is ranked number one by both transaction volume and value on IJ Global, and we are proud of our track record in supporting many of the UK's listed renewables infrastructure funds, both with their fundraisings and their increasingly global M&A activity. Find out how we can help your company to succeed at bdo.co.uk and realise your business potential. BDO. More than a numbers machine. We didn't fully answer a question before, which is, um, why do we need storage now? You know, we've had renewables since the mid-2000s. We are now suddenly faced with a big upswing in, in developing them and building them out in the grid. So why is that happening now? One, there's a technological answer to this. So it's simply that well, lithium-ion batteries been around uh, since the 80s in terms of invention. So John Goodenough won the Nobel Prize for, uh, a year or two ago for for the invention of the lithium-ion battery. But really outside of sort of, you know, Sony camcorders and things like that, it didn't really take off until we started using it more widely in consumer electronics. So first in, uh, you know, laptops and tablets and phones and so on. But then later on in terms of electric vehicles and now into stationary grid storage. So Fluence was actually at the very beginning of this about 14 years ago, doing the very first grid scale battery projects in the world. So there were niche cases which still made sense for batteries to do even at the significantly higher cost levels that they were at. But since this sort of virtuous circle of investment, we've had very significant demand from consumer electronics, electric vehicles, and now grid storage, which drive up production, which fuel R&D and innovation, and therefore we get more energy-dense packs, lower-cost packs coming through in cycle. And then as production scales up, we also see cost declines as a result of that. So there's a there's a learning rate which is sort of very self-reinforcing that as storage gets cheaper, we can use it for more things and therefore we do deploy it more and then we build more. So that's the technological answer to it. The sort of grid need side of things is, I, I mean, when I started my, my career, I did a PhD in renewable energy integration, 2009 to 2013. And I was reading the literature and the papers around that time. And you were getting papers saying, oh, you can't get above 10% renewables, it'll break the grid. You can't get above 20%, it'll break the grid. And and that's the sort of levels we were at. But even at sort of 10 or 20% of electricity being satisfied by renewables, there wasn't really actually anything you needed to do about it at all, right? You could make your power plants a little bit more flexible in terms of their minimum generation and how they ramp up and down. But you didn't fundamentally have any stability issues. But when you get above 20%, 
it, it, you know, it, there's no trigger point. It's just gradually the more and more renewables you add to the electricity grid, the more you have to deal with the stability and intermittency impacts that that, that causes. So the area where it becomes really interesting is most people forget that if you're thinking about 20% renewables or 30% or 40% on average over the year, that means to reach a 40% on average, there's going to be periods where you have to be significantly higher than 40% because there are periods where there aren't you know, there isn't any wind or there isn't any solar. So that's actually what drives renewable uptake and the particularly the frequency regulation services we were talking about in the first half, that you you need to provide stability to the, the grid during times where there's a lot of renewable energy generation and where there, by default, therefore, isn't a lot of thermal power plant on the grid. And that's what's driven it. And maybe to put some kind of numbers on this, you know, how do we decide what storage to deploy where and and what are the, the costs involved? I'm thinking, you know, we, we have a, an electricity price that that fluctuates. How, if you're a developer, do you decide that you can make this economic, that you can play in this market, and and how you're going to provide those services and, and at what price? Because that obviously uh, reflects, you know, what what facilities you could build. Right, big pumped hydro projects are expensive and remote. They come with extra costs. Smaller, kind of more nimble battery projects, you can put them. Not just about anywhere you like, but you know they're they're a lot more flexible in that way too. I'll have a go at answering that, and then maybe I'll pass it to David because I think he probably has some topics to weigh in on here as well. It look, it's really driven by market needs, and if the market doesn't need it, no one's going to deploy it. So there has to be a remuneration mechanism. There has to be access to markets in order for storage to be deployed. The very early scrappy projects that we were doing in other electricity markets, we had to make batteries look as much like a coal power plant as possible because otherwise they wouldn't actually be allowed to connect to the grid and do anything useful. And that's simply because at the time there was no, you know, there was no playbook of like what batteries didn't exist on the grid. You had to come up with some some way of getting it on the electricity system. So that the first thing is regulatory hurdles being removed. The next is access to as many markets as possible, because it's easy to set up a battery to do one job and one job only, which is frequency regulation. But that's significantly curtailing its valuable use cases if if it's not allowed, for instance, to trade in energy markets to provide voltage support. So providing access to these different revenue streams is really what's driven uh, a lot of the uptake. We now have about 1,500 megawatts of, of batteries, whereas you go back four, five years, it was certainly in in the tens of megawatts only. So that uptake has been very rapid and it's been driven by access to, to different markets. Developers essentially respond to, to market needs. No, I think, I think you've hit that on the head there, Marek. I mean, your point about the establishment of an industry creates its own momentum. I think that's important. You're right, four or five years ago, there were very few utility-scale battery projects and the people doing it were pioneers, You know, genuinely taking significant risk there were, you know, back then there were um, challenges with with the markets that did exist, capacity market, frequency response markets that that, that were in, in existence then um, were very volatile, and the capacity market paused for regulatory reasons for the best part of two years. There was a huge amount of uncertainty. And that meant that uh, the other issue, of course, was you were buying batteries five years ago, worrying that maybe they'd be twice as twice as cheap in in a year's time or in two years time so Hmm. you you're faced with these sort of triple whammies of 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 risk but what we've seen since then is capacity market issue resolved Um, we've seen slightly better mechanisms for uh, and markets for delivering 
voltage controlled as you described it just more a, a broader range of more sophisticated services as as to whether they are less volatile in the long term that's an interesting question i'd say it's still probably quite difficult to predict pricing in these markets going forward we've seen how difficult it is to predict power prices in the pure generation markets but i suspect there'll be more volatility in the in the storage markets so the risks haven't completely disappeared you know, a battery project looks very different in in complexity and risk to a solar farm or wind farm still today but it's it's changed massively and and that's reflected in you know an increasing number of players institutional investors putting money directly into utility scale battery storage and the projects are getting bigger uh, more sophisticated I, I think we all believe that this capacity is required and that's what's ultimately driving their confidence but it's a it's 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 a market that's matured very quickly if you think about we're talking four years ago it's four or five years ago it's uh, it's quite remarkable what's happened one of the big trigger points for that on the planning side has been the lifting of the 50 megawatt cap that there was so it used to be that batteries under 50 megawatt would go under local planning and anything above that would be nationally significant infrastructure which just in terms of cost and time of the development cycle to get a project with land grid planning and a business case would take multiple years. But there was a recognition, something we we lobbied for through the electricity storage network as, as members of saying, look, uh, the 50 megawatt cap was set by diesel generators, basically thermal thermal power plants. And a battery is very different in, in you know planning, let alone anything else to, to that sort of asset, because it's pretty benign, right? It's, it's yeah, essentially containerized sort of solution a modular modular set of building blocks there's there's no water usage there's really there's there's nothing in you know it's quite an innocuous sort of structure the the biggest thing to worry about is maybe noise during operation and so the threshold was lifted to 350 megawatts and we're now seeing hundreds of megawatts being built in single single projects in single goes now so that alone has sort of 10x or 100x some of the very early deployments uh where the 10 megawatt we we built the very first commercial grid battery in the in the uk actually way back in in 2015 and it was 10 megawatts because 9.99 was below the the threshold that which we could get a harmonized ancillary service contract um and and, and build it behind the meter at a coal power station uh so yeah, it's it's a different world now in terms of, of scale of these these projects and therefore the speed at which they can be deployed as well. So you, you mentioned a couple of things there. I think it's a, a great point to look at some of the challenges and, and basically the question, why why don't we have more of this already? David, you've mentioned a bit of risk and a bit of learning. Marek, you've mentioned some kind of policy angles. Looking just at the UK, you know, are there things that are holding us back from making more of this technology now or are we on the right course? I think there's, there still is, I talked about that sort of residual um, future pricing risk. There are sort of market experts, just like with um, with power prices, there, there are various consultants in the market that um, spend their time trying to forecast and give give, give some um, clarity on likely future pricing for, for the revenue streams that um, utility scale batteries produce. I think that th- there's still some uncertainty there so if you're looking to you know lend against um this kind of asset you're faced with that future revenue stream kind of dilemma some of the some some elements of the revenue streams are contracted for a number of years in advance but it's not a significant proportion of of total total revenue for this kind of asset so there's still a bit of uncertainty 
but it, it's hard to argue we're not going in the right direction, given the uh, you know the, the the explosion in in developments, and we're seeing, we're even seeing now you know most renewables generation development projects usually have some kind of kind of parallel planning application for a, for a storage storage site. The I mean co-locations are sort of perhaps another topic for another time, but um, the market clearly sees. Uh, the need for storage and is is sort of factoring that into you know, the very early stage of, of of planning and development for for renewables generally. Um, so I think that's all r- really positive. I, I guess though, in terms of the future, the biggest risk is probably around these longer term storage technologies that that Marek alluded to. This you know time shifting over much longer periods, and there, I don't think we've quite got on the sort of technological momentum shift that um, Marek talked about with with uh, with batteries hasn't quite happened yet with the longer term storage the risks are bigger the capital costs are, are bigger i guess as well is this a kind of fundamental a, a physics challenge really i mean we have a system we rely quite heavily on gas gas is a great form of energy storage in, in terms of what we need it for right we can store it in a big tank and we can use it in the winter when it's cold that's also a, a pricing point as well it, it's it was relatively cheap. It's now incredibly expensive. I appreciate that causes a lot of volatility as well. So are there kind of, you know, is it in competition with other forms of technologies that we that needs to get better as well, Marek? I mean, it is essentially. If you you know, you put it that way, it's 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 quite evident that we haven't needed long duration storage because we've had a very effective and relatively low carbon compared to some of the other fossil fuel technologies on the electricity grid. Now the challenge with volatility is it works both ways. It can be volatile upwards, it can be volatile downwards. And that that is difficult for for investors because, okay, there is now, I think, stronger political will to to decarbonize, move away from dependency on, on imported gas. And that's going to create uh, a vacuum or a gap that needs to be solved. So it could be a you know perfect opportunity for longer duration storage technologies to to come in. The, the other aspect of this is whether there's ever going to be sort of border carbon taxes. The, the EU is moving more in that direction than it has done before with setting out legislation that, 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 you know, that essentially protects and promotes localized production one way or another. And that's, that's something that could help because something that's not a factor directly into the, the gas price. Okay, there is a, you know, the emissions trading scheme, but it hasn't really historically moved the needle that much in terms of investment decisions on, on long duration storage. The other thing that I think is holding us back, moving back away from the, the long duration stuff to the near term, is actually now supply demand. We've had a huge bounce back of, of demand for batteries in particular because of electric vehicle sales going you know, through the roof, through the need for grid storage. And now actually increasingly we're finding that, um, that the, the challenges on the supply chain side, there's frankly not that many stationary storage uh, technology providers that can get access to large volumes of reliable battery supply. Um, as the largest player in the space, we're one of the few that, that does. And we're finding increasingly actually a lot of businesses coming to us because they can't get access through you know, smaller players, smaller integrators. And that's leading to a slowdown in actual deployments just because there's only so much capacity that, that's available to, to be deployed for stationary storage, particularly because in electric vehicles, generally the the margins in those sort of vehicles are going to be better. So if you have a choice between A and B, and there are some companies out there that that do both, probably well-known ones, where are you going to put your batteries if if you have that dilemma to make? And probably it's going to be in the electric cars, right? So that's what's going to potentially slow up the transformation of the electricity system is is sort of competing priorities with with a constrained supply. 
I think it's a short-term issue. There's a lot more supply coming online in the, the next year or couple of years, but that's that's another correction uh, that, that's going to have to happen sometime soon. And does that make other forms of storage more attractive or you know, increase people's willingness to invest or willingness to explore? You know, We mentioned these compressed air, we mentioned pumped hydro. Does that, does that change the kind of economics on them? They're all long-term projects, though, I'd assume. So it, it's really coming out in the wash, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, I would say probably not for the simple reason that unless you believe this is a, a you know a systemic shift and battery prices are going to remain you know higher than that they were they won't continue the you know course correct and continue coming back down again in the in the future then well really a year or two of of, of higher prices isn't going to make a difference because particularly for those sort of other technologies if you're looking at you know flow batteries or liquid air compressed air you need to be taking a 20 30 maybe even 50 year time horizon for your investment case and i think that's fundamentally the problem right it's very difficult to predict what's going to happen in two years let alone in in 20 or 50. so david i mean in terms of the clients that you work with can that be overcome is this just a case of of having some major projects backed and seeing that there is you know investment interest in it or is this again more of a technological problem that we need to wait and kind of see this catching up? Look, I think um, from what we're seeing, we are starting to see the emergence of, of sort of companies IPOing that have got slightly different battery chemistry technologies. So um, there's a business called Gillian, which uh, IPO'd a few months ago, which has a non-flow zinc bromide technology. And there are others. Um, we're working on on others at the moment. Um, so that there are signs that, the investors, and I'm talking about sort of public, you know, institutional investors, um, are showing interest in these alternative forms of technology, which actually may, you know, you know, they have slightly different characteristics. Perhaps one thing we should we could run through at some point is the sort of list of, you know, the, the key characteristics of a, of a storage system. What kinds of things can you be good at and bad at? But so, so some of the things that um, lithium ion is is very good at aren't always needed in utility scale storage, and we're starting to see those technology companies get beyond pure sort of academic research and um, pre-commercialization um, stages. So that that's gives me some confidence that um, within a few years, we'll start to see more of these technologies uh, deployed. More generally, to taking storage generally, I mean, I think, you know, we talked about the four or five year explosion. I mean, there are now three, at least three dedicated listed funds on the London Exchange, which basically invest, take investors' money and deploy directly into utility-scale battery storage. I suspect there'll be more. I think that's really encouraging. We're finding a, a lot of invest, a lot of the vehicles are a bit like the renewables funds, actually. They're, they're investing at an earlier stage. So whereas once they may have been buying operational assets, you know, existing batteries that have been built by someone else, now they are taking on more of the sort of construction development risk and they're buying into rights um, for ready-to-build projects or even development projects that aren't quite ready. So that's pulling back the stage of investment, which gives them potentially a high return, which is, which is fantastic. But it, And I guess in the context of um, the supply chain challenges um, that Marek mentioned, I guess... You know, it doesn't solve them, but it means at least that they're, they're ready when those um, supply chain challenges relieve a bit you know, to, to, to continue to deploy. 
David, you've picked up a great point there for our next episode, which will be a deep dive into battery storage technology specifically. Um, but I do want to zoom out just slightly and, and maybe hand over to Marek. We've, we've talked a lot about the UK. Obviously, Fluence works in a lot of different markets. Is there anything happening around the world that's really exciting in energy storage or anything that we should be learning from to do differently? Yeah, there, there's an awful lot, actually. So Fluence is, is present in about 30 different markets now with with projects. Uh, we have offices in seven different places and we've close to five gigawatts now of, of battery energy storage projects, either operational or uh, awarded and in, in construction. And so that spans a lot of different geographies, a lot of interesting contrasts in terms of the speed at which energy storage is being picked up and actually what it's being used for. So I can just pick a couple of uh, interesting examples out there. One to flirt with, with the political perhaps is Eastern Europe and what's happening there is very interesting because we we recently were awarded a uh, a 200 megawatt um, uh, portfolio of what we call T and D transmission and distribution use case storage in uh, in Lithuania. So Lithuania is is part of the Baltic Ring and therefore connected to the Russian electricity grid, um, similar to to Ukraine and, and other countries that uh, therefore are reliant electrically or have been historically on essentially electricity that's generated in in Russia. So one of the interesting things that we're starting to see in countries over there is the move to decouple from the Baltic Ring and onto the European one. And that's something that batteries interestingly can help with because it's not so much about time shifting. It is about some of those things like grid stability. It's about black start being able to start the grid if it was was to to fail. And so we're seeing quite significant scale portfolios being built out there for network infrastructure purposes. So the sort of use case of virtual transmission lines that I mentioned at the very beginning of, of the uh, of the podcast and dealing with grid constraints in a different way. So that's quite interesting for one. Uh, second is I'm I'm responsible for, uh, in addition to the UK and Ireland, the the Israeli market, and Israel is very different in terms of its its structure. But in a, in some ways, it's very similar to the UK market in that it's electrically well. It, UK actually has an interconnection. The Israeli market, for again geopolitical reasons, doesn't have interconnection at all, and so is operating as an islanded system. And although it's much further behind in terms of renewable energy penetration at the moment it is catching up very rapidly and of course has an incredible solar resource. So being able to to integrate large amounts of solar to the grid presents a different set of challenges to an electricity system where mostly we're dealing with wind energy like the, the UK, uh, namely that there is a lot more time shifting of renewables that needs to happen there. And so Israel actually just had a very simple policy of, of mandating four hours of uh, of energy storage with every megawatt of solar that's being added to the medium voltage grid there. And and that's led to a very rapid and accelerated uptake of, of renewable energy generation. It's becoming one of um, EMEA's biggest electricity markets um, for, for energy storage in, in a very short space of time as a result of that. Um, a lot of other examples, but maybe one more just to pick up on because it would be, I think, remiss of me not to mention the US because the US is currently the global leader in you know, energy storage deployments. Uh, that's largely been driven by PICA replacement strategies. So if you particularly look at places like California, it's very difficult to get permitted a, a gas peaking power station, uh, largely because of the environmental permits, water usage, emissions, noise, visual impact, etc. Whereas batteries, they don't use water visual impact is significantly less. They're obviously not actually making any sort of direct emissions when they're 
when they're they're generating. In fact, they're helping integrate renewables. So we've seen a, a large uptake of energy storage being used to displace what traditionally would have been a peaking power plant that ran, you know, less than five percent of the year for a few hours a year just to meet peak demand. And that's been a very significant use case as well, I would say. And it's one that we're starting to see emerge into, into more markets. Ireland, for instance, adjacent to the UK, we've seen in the recent capacity market, three and four hour batteries start to be awarded. So we're starting to see this move towards longer and longer duration storage, which can, can solve more problems. So there's a lot more uh, more examples than that. But again, in the interest of brevity, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll stick at a few short teasers. Well, look, I think that's a fantastic place to end and, and really sets the scene for the rest of this uh, series. A lot of stuff to, to tackle from technologies to challenges to policy. Hopefully we'll have more time as the series progresses to dive into all of those a bit more. But that brings us to the end of our first installment of the Megawatt Hour. Thank you to David and Marek for joining me for an amazing introduction into the sector. And hopefully this is a great springboard for more discussions throughout the series. Thanks also to you for listening. You can let us know your thoughts through our social media channels or by emailing outloud at energyvoice.com. And every week, the Energy Voice team get together to highlight important stories from the world of energy in our regular podcast episodes. If you've not already, please do subscribe free to Energy Voice Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And listen out for more episodes of the Megawatt Hour coming your way very soon. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.